Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Eric Jensen about his book, Barbarians in the Greek and Roman World. Eric, welcome to the show. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I am a historian of the ancient Mediterranean. And the ancient Mediterranean, when we speak about that region of the world and in history, we often go to Greece and Rome. Those are the major cultures that we know of the ancient Mediterranean. But the ancient Mediterranean was a much larger, more complicated place. And a lot of my research is about how peoples like the Greeks and Romans interacted with people who were not Greek and Roman. That focus really does uh, come across in your book. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us how what it was led you to write a book about uh, the barbarians of the Greek and Roman world. Well, this book was really born of frustration because I've wanted a book for my students to give them a grounding in understanding these kinds of interactions between the Greeks and the Romans and other peoples. And there is a lot of really excellent, really fascinating scholarship that has been done over the past several decades and continues to be done. But a lot of that scholarship has stayed in the scholarly literature and isn't really accessible to people who aren't experts, to people like my students or my friends or people that I want to talk about my research with. And so I decided in the end, if I couldn't find a book that would help explain the basics of what I do and help my students understand how to get into that scholarship a little further, then I would have to write it myself. And so that is what I set about to do. It's a very fascinating book because as uh, uh, you demonstrate in the book, ultimately this issue of a barbarian is not so much a question of what a barbarian is so much as it is a question of what does it mean to be Greek or what does it mean to be a Roman? Yes, that's precisely it. Uh, This word barbarian is an inherently relational word. Uh, No one is a barbarian sitting at home alone on their own. We're only barbarians in the eyes of someone who is not like us. And so to talk about the barbarians, we have to talk about who are the people who called them barbarians and why did they call them that? And so really, this leads us back again to the question of the Greeks and the Romans and how they thought about their own identity and how they related to a larger world. As you explained at the beginning of the book, though, you do I explain this concept of a barbarian. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit as to how it was that the, the Greeks in particular came up with this concept and, and even the word itself. Well, the origins of the word barbarian, or as it is in Greek, barbaros, are not entirely clear. But what is clear is that it originally referred to language, not to culture or ethnicity or origins, 
But the earliest meaning of the word barbarian was a person who does not speak Greek. And that seems to be reflected even in the shape of the world itself. The bar-bar repetition sort of sounds like nonsense. That combination of a B and an R or other sounds like that are, are very common in languages as words for expressing the idea of nonsense, as we see in English, blah, 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 or babble, or rhubarb. There's that same kind of pattern that we see in the word barbaros in Greek. So this emerges first as a word by which the Greeks uh, describe people who don't speak the Greek language. And naturally, it was first applied to those peoples who did not speak Greek, who were important for the early Greeks, and that is their trading partners. People like the Phoenicians or the Egyptians, people with whom Greeks had this early contact as traders and to some extent as mercenaries and adventurers out in the world. But from there, the word takes an interesting adventure that over time, the word comes to mean more than just a difference of language. It acquires a meaning of culture. So that in later Greek history, when they speak of barbarians, they don't just mean someone who doesn't speak Greek. They mean someone who is culturally different, someone whose culture is not like that of the Greeks. Sometimes, it comes as pejorative as we use it today. We call something barbaric and we're not being nice about it. So some later Greeks, they called people barbarians and there was a sting in that word. There was an implication that there was something wrong with those people. But that's not the only way in which that word was used. It continued to be used in a way that simply means someone who is not like us, someone whose culture is different. Now, the Romans then pick up this word, barbaros, as they picked up a lot of Greek culture, and became the Latin word barbaros, which had many of the same meanings, an outsider, a foreigner, someone whose culture is different. But of course, because the Romans' interactions with the world are not the same as the Greeks, the Romans were a conquering empire. And so their interactions with people were different. The word starts taking on some different implications as well. And we get some interesting arguments emerging in Roman literature about, well, what are barbarians and why are they barbarians and can they ever change? Can you stop being a barbarian? Can you become something else? And even later in history, as more and more people from outside the Roman Empire were brought into the Roman army to serve as soldiers, this word barbarous in Latin could also mean simply a soldier. Any soldier could be called a barbaros. It gets even more complicated as the Roman world becomes Christian, as we get this other layer of cultural difference, is that now it's no longer just a question of being Roman or not, it's now a question of religion. Are you Christian or not? And so some people start using this word barbaros to mean people who are not Christian. So the word itself, down through the periods of Greek and Roman history, went through these interesting changes and permutations taking different variations on this idea of difference, whether it's linguistic or cultural or social or religious. Now, all of these different possibilities of meaning can be explored in different eras. And it gets to, uh, the way you just explained it gets to the heart of your book, which is that it's uh, on one level about how these 
uh, civilizations interacted with the worlds in which they lived. And to take us back to uh, the the uh, earlier chapters of your book, when you're talking about the early Greeks, it's interesting how it's initially framed in terms of linguistics. And as you explained, it, it has to be because as you know, for, for people who, who uh, uh, aren't familiar with, with, with early uh, Greek history, it, there is no such thing as a, a Greek, uh, you know, uh, country at this time, we're, we're, that it's actually several different uh, polities that are together that are interacting with each other. Yes, precisely. The idea of Greekness is itself a complicated question because there was a shared language, although there are many variations of that language. There are different dialects of ancient Greek, some of which were difficult for other Greeks to understand. There's a shared culture, but again, there are local variations of that culture. There was no political unity. The ancient Greeks were never politically unified on their own initiative. Sometimes they could cobble together alliances, but those tended not to last. And so the sense of Greek identity was something that was actually rather complicated and rather difficult to put together. This is something that was open to debate, was open to argument. And we see that this becomes an element of political argument that when one Greek city wants to be engaged with another, you know, wants to form an alliance or wants to do a deal, they may call upon this shared notion of Greek identity to say, we are Greeks, we should be doing this together. But at the same time, they could also turn on one another and criticize one another for not following correct procedures or not being Greek enough or not having the correct ancestry. There was no settled definition of Greekness. It was always up for debate, always up for negotiation and argument. And as you explain, what shapes this in part is that, you know, that notion of Greekness is that association with the outside world. And you bring into the book their very famous uh, relationship with the Persians, one that's been explained and, and, and often and oftentimes misinterpreted, and, and how that came into this conversation as well, the interaction with the foreigner, and also how different groups of Greeks were interacting with the Persians. Yes. Yes. From the late 500s BCE on, it's really impossible to speak about Greek history without thinking about the effect of Persia, because the Persian Empire was the largest empire in the world, the largest empire the world had seen up to that date. And the conquest of Persia in the West had brought them right up to the doorstep of the Greek cities and even to the Greek cities in Anatolia, what is today the Asian part of Turkey themselves. And so the Greeks were engaged with the Persian Empire, and it was impossible for them to not think about their relationship to Persia. Now, Persia had a complicated relationship with the Greeks. Sometimes this relationship was quite amicable. In some cases, we know of plenty of Greeks who traveled to Persia, who were received uh, at the Persian court, if they were of high enough status, or were employed by the Persian court. Some of the great works of art in the Persian capital of Persepolis we know were carved by Greek stonemasons and sculptors. We know that there were Greeks who worked in the bureaucracy of the Persian Empire. Uh, 
We have mentions of dancers and courtesans and entertainers who came from Greece and who were in favor of the Persian court. And so there was a lot of traffic back and forth, a lot of Greeks who engaged in Persia. We also know Persians who came to Greece, who came as traders, as merchants, as travelers, or as exiles. People who got into political trouble in Persia could go to Greece and find a place to live there. But of course, there's also a history of conflict between Greece and Persia, because Persia was an empire, and Greece was on their frontier, which means that the Persian state was concerned about what happened in Greece, events in Greece, particularly the ongoing conflict between Greek cities, could have ramifications for the Persian Empire. And in many cases, the relations between Persia and Greece hinged upon the relations between Greece and Egypt. So Greeks and Egyptians had a very long-standing, friendly trading relationship. It was a very natural trading relationship between Greece and Egypt because Egypt was very rich in food. They have the Nile Valley, which was the breadbasket of the ancient Mediterranean, the tremendous fertility of the Nile Valley. Whereas Greece, it's mountainous, it's rocky, the soil is not particularly rich. Greeks had trouble producing enough food for themselves. But Egypt is poor in metals. And so Greeks as merchants, could bring metals, particularly silver, to Egypt to trade for food, and this was a very mutually beneficial relationship. Egypt was a province of the Persian Empire, and it was a troublesome one. The Egyptians were not happy under Persian rule. When they resisted Persian rule, they often looked to Greece for support. Very often, when there was resistance in Egypt, it was backed up with Greek mercenary soldiers. And so Persian interests in Greece were complicated. They had an interest in the Greeks themselves as neighbors, as people who were on their frontier, as trading partners. But they also had an interest in making sure that Greece would not interfere with Persian interests in Egypt. And all of this comes to a head in the early 400s with the invasion of Greece, first a small invasion under the Persian king Darius, which was targeted specifically at Athens. And then 10 years later, the larger invasion under the Persian king Xerxes, which aimed to conquer all of Greece. This was a traumatic experience for the Greeks. This was a series of wars that affected almost all of the Greek world and was one of the rare occasions in which a large alliance of Greek cities came together in order to resist the Persians' attack. So this experience with Persia became very much a part of how Greeks later on thought about themselves. The wars against Persia furnished a set of narratives and stories and characters that later Greeks could always pull out when they needed to talk about themselves and their relationship to the outside world to define what it was to be Greek. At the same time, despite this uh, almost cultivated sense of conflict, there continued to run underneath this a history of interaction between Greece and Persia that was about trade and travel and specialist 
uh, finding employment and service abroad. All of these basically friendly interactions carried on despite this history of conflict and the ways in which later Greeks like to look back to that history of conflict and bring those stories forward again. And so Persia becomes really the biggest question for Greeks when they think about their identity and they think about barbarians. And Persia is the one place that Greeks always look to when they think about barbarians. I was thinking about this other dynamic that uh, you refer to in the book as well, which is this notion of colonization and how it represents this other uh, area of, of interaction, sort of the, in many ways the, the borderland of, of, of Greek civilization. And one of the things I, I found very revelatory about your book was the fact that there were these small colonies even within Egypt itself. And it, it, it's, it's uh, interesting how the idea that that must have been where this uh, contrast, this, 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 this uh, interaction was at its starkest. These Greeks who are who were literally surrounded by barbarians and who are at the forefront of these issues of of Persian relations of 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 Greek as a uh, as an other, and then how they are at the same time though still tied to uh, their uh, their their homeland. Yes, uh, the colonial experience was another very important experience for the Greeks in shaping how they thought about themselves and how they thought about other peoples. The colonization was driven by problems within Greece itself. Greece, as I said, it's mountainous, it's rocky, it's not particularly good farmland. And so as society grew, as population grew within Greece gradually, but still it started running up against the limits of the land and became necessary to find something to do with excess population. Another thing that drove colonization was internal conflict, also related to this competition for resources. And a third motivation for colonization was trade. That external trade became crucial to the Greek economy. Greece is not particularly good for producing basic foodstuffs. You can't grow a lot of wheat in Greece very effectively. But it's really good land for growing grapes and growing olives, which can be turned into wine and olive oil, these two products that were in high demand throughout the Mediterranean. And so colonies were founded for many different reasons. They were founded throughout the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Some of them were clearly just an escape valve for excess population. Some of them were founded in order to settle internal conflicts with the losing side of a conflict would uh, decamp and go somewhere else. And some of them are clearly founded for trade. Now, the, the settlement in Egypt at a site called Naukratis is an interesting combination of these different uh, motivations. It originally came from a group of mercenaries who were hired by the Egyptians to fight on their behalf. And once the fighting was done, they were settled at a particular location in the Egyptian delta. But because they had that settlement there, that then became the site for trade between Egyptians and Greeks. And so after a couple of generations, that settlement was reorganized and it was officially designated as the landing point for Greeks. It became a Greek community within Egypt, which in itself was quite extraordinary because Egyptians 
were not always very welcoming to outsiders. Uh, they, they liked being able to trade with the outside world, have contact with the outside world, but they were often resistant to letting outsiders settle in Egypt. Greeks are the one people who ever got official permission from the Egyptians to have their own settlement inside of Egypt, which is another indication of how important this trading relationship was to both sides. But in Naucratis, the relationships between Greeks and Egyptians developed and became more complex. And we see the effects of that later on. Uh, there's a whole set of stories and folklore that developed in Greek literature about Naucratis. One of the great characters who emerged in that setting in Naucratis was a courtesan by the name of Dorica. She was originally Thracian, not Greek. She came from Thrace, which is roughly modern-day Bulgaria. But she was uh, a courtesan in Naucratis. Um, she also had the working name of Rhodopis, so she's referred to by either of those two names. And there is a whole set of stories about Dorica or Rhodopis that reflect the ways in which Greeks and Egyptians interacted with each other. One of them is this wonderful little folktale which says that Dorica was bathing one day, had her sandals off as she was bathing, and a bird flew down from the sky and picked up her sandal and carried it away and dropped it down right at the feet of the Egyptian pharaoh. And the pharaoh looked at the sandal, saw how beautiful it was, decided that he had to meet the woman whose sandal this was, and so he sent his people off to search the land to find the woman who owed this sandal. He eventually discovered Dorica and was so impressed with her that he married her and made her his queen. Uh, this is, interestingly, the earliest recorded version of the Cinderella story, but also a reflection of how Greeks and Egyptians interacted with one another. Now, obviously, this is just a folktale. Uh, Dorica did not get married to the pharaoh, as far as we know. But... Greeks thought about Naucratis as a place where all kinds of different people could interact with one another, where lines between cultures got crossed. And that's reflected in the kinds of stories they told about what happened in Naucratis. Now, Naucratis was one type of colony. There were many other kinds. There were some colonies where the Greeks arrived in large numbers in a region that was not very well organized, that was not um, prepared to interact with them. And so in some places, Greek colonies came to dominate the local landscape, uh, militarily, culturally, socially. In some places, the local people were reduced to a state near slavery. That did happen in some places. But most colonies were small. There were a small group of founding families who went out to create these colonies, and they could not simply impose their will on the local people. They did not have superior military technology. They did not carry diseases to which the locals lacked immunity in the way of some modern colonial experiences. And so these Greeks in these other colonies had to find some way of accommodating themselves to the local people. In some places, they did that by providing services and goods that local peoples wanted. We see this particularly in northern Italy, where the Etruscans, who had control of very substantial iron resources that the Greeks wanted to get access to for trade, 
really seem to have fallen in love with Greek art, and they collected and displayed Greek art with a great appetite. This was something that the Greeks could offer in order to make themselves welcome there. And in other places, we see that Greek culture and local cultures combined into an interesting new hybrid culture. This happens in some places on Sicily, where we see Greek types of houses and artifacts and artworks getting combined with local styles to produce something new that doesn't look exactly Greek and doesn't look exactly Sicilian, but has traces of both. All these different kinds of interactions happened in the colonies, these places where the Greeks went to settle or to trade. And the influences from the colonies made their way back to Greece as well. Because most colonies maintain some kind of contact with the founding city that sent them out originally. Some were close, some were a bit more distant, but no colony was really cut off from the Greek world. And so through the colonies, Greeks acquired this whole range of contacts with foreign peoples, and also they developed a set of practices for interacting with other peoples through trade, through intermarriage, through imitation, and through some of these kinds of interactions that we see reflected in the folk tales about Nocratus as well. Now, did these uh, patterns, uh, were they the template for Greece's contact with the broader world during the Hellenistic period? Or did the years of conquest redefine how Greece interacted with outsiders? Now, the Hellenistic period brings some new problems to the table. So the Hellenistic period, after the conquests of Alexander the Great that took in the whole Persian Empire and then broke down into a set of smaller kingdoms that we call the successor kingdoms, uh, Greeks were left in an unusual position, which is that the home Greek cities back in mainland Greece had been conquered by an outside power, and they were now struggling to live under the rule of Macedonian kings. Whereas elsewhere among the successor kingdoms, those Macedonian rulers had adopted a lot of Greek culture, and they brought in many immigrants from the Greek world to help manage their kingdoms. The Greeks had developed a great repertoire of skills in managing affairs at the city-state level, both at home in Greece and out in the colonies. So they brought some of these skills and these patterns with them for interacting with the local people into the Hellenistic world. But the Hellenistic kingdoms confronted something that Greeks had never confronted before, which was how to rule large bureaucratic kingdoms. This was simply a skill set that Greeks did not have. And so within a few generations, we see that in the Hellenistic kingdoms, the Macedonian and Greek ruling class has to make new accommodations with the local people. So we see, for example, in Egypt, 
that for the Ptolemaic kings, the descendants of Alexander's general Ptolemy, who ruled Egypt after his conquest, they had to deal with the local Egyptians. Egyptians had lots and lots of practice with managing their own country, and the Greeks and Macedonians did not have this skill. But Egypt had for a long time depended on a collaboration between the kings at the top and the priests who managed local temples, which were centers not just of religious affairs, but also of local commerce and local politics. And so within a few generations, we see the Ptolemaic kings starting to make the same kinds of accommodations with the Egyptian priests, where essentially a deal was struck that the Ptolemaic kings would give their backing to the local priests so that they could maintain their traditional powers and their traditional prestige and in return, the Egyptian priests would use their local knowledge and their body of skills to support the kingdom. Pardon me, to support the kingdom. We see a similar kind of arrangement in the Seleucid kingdom, which was centered on Mesopotamia, what is today Iraq, but also took in much of the Middle East and the Iranian plateau, where the ruling class remained basically Macedonian and Greek. A few local peoples ascended into the higher aristocracy, but that Greek and Macedonian ruling class had to accommodate itself to local traditions. And that included, for example, allowing local aristocrats to uh, take over local positions of power. And so while the, the kingdom's highest ruling class remained basically Greek and Macedonian, the rulers of a lot of cities and individual provinces tended to become uh, members of the local aristocracy. They were drawn from that. At the same time, the Seleucid kings started to adopt some of the court ceremonials and the traditions of old Babylonian kings. We see this particularly in the celebration of the New Year in Babylon, which was a very important festival. Seleucid kings start celebrating that festival in traditional Babylonian ways. So the Hellenistic world, it does draw on many of the experiences in the colonial period, where Greeks had figured out ways of accommodating themselves to local societies but also had to take those skills and apply them to a fundamentally new problem, which was how to rule an empire, something Greeks had never done before. And this also raises another interesting question. If those groups which are traditionally the barbarians are now being conquered and uh, and, and irradiated, if you will, with Greek ideas and, and, and Greek culture, who then are the barbarians? Yes. And the question becomes a lot more complicated in the Hellenistic period. We see many different things happening. One is there is uh, a kind of reassertion of a Greek identity. A lot of Greek immigrants who came to the successor kingdoms brought with them not so much their own local traditions, but a a new set of pan-Greek or pan-Hellenic traditions. Uh, 
So people who came from Athens or Thebes or Corinth tended to leave behind their identity as Athenians or Thebans or Corinthians, but they started to assert an identity as Greeks. And so one of the things we see happen is that Greek language develops this new form that we call koine, which means common or shared, which is based on primarily on Athenian Greek, but that sheds a lot of the local peculiarities and the irregularities and smooths out the differences between the different dialects. We also see that Greeks in the successor kingdoms tend to celebrate things that Greeks had in common, things like the Olympic Games and other athletic competitions that were not the property of one particular city, but were shared among all Greeks. And religious sites like the Oracle at Delphi, which again was not the property just of one city, but was open to all Greeks. At the same time as that there is this assertion of a collective Greek identity by the Greeks, we also see that local people start selectively picking up particular elements of Greek identity. Uh, some of this follows on patterns that go back to the colonial age. So much like the Etruscans loved to collect Greek art, we see that Greek literature starts to become the common property of the people of the successor kingdoms, not just those who identify as Greeks. And so we get Egyptians telling stories about heroes fighting Amazons that are based on the Greek legends of the Trojan War, but that have Egyptian characters in them. We also see that local peoples in the successor kingdoms start taking up this argument of identity. There's one very interesting passage from a poet who was Syrian. He, he was a, a local Syrian in the Seleucid kingdom. He wrote under the Greek name of Meliaga, which is something many people did. They took on Greek names. But in his poems, he argued that the great Greek epic poet Homer must have been Syrian because the heroes in the Homeric epics never eat fish, and fish is taboo for Syrians. I imagine this poem coming out with a, a bit of a twinkle in the eye. This is obviously tweaking this sense of Greek identity and saying, look, I can play your game too. Another aspect, uh, we've been talking about how the Greeks have been developing this identity and how they've been defining barbarians based upon it. it. And in a sense, we're talking about a linear development. And then you have this very different element that, that that's introduced into how we consider it when we shift the focus to the Romans. I was wondering if you could explain how the Roman development uh, differed, how, uh, the, the, how the context was different, and how the Romans had a very different approach towards this idea of interacting with their neighbors and with outsiders. Yes. Well, in Rome, there is a key fundamental difference, which is that Rome was an expansive conquering state. The Greeks interacted with the larger world primarily as merchants 
as specialists who went to find jobs outside of Greece if they couldn't find one in Greece, or as colonists who founded these small colonies for trade to get away from problems in Greece. But there was no Greek empire. To the extent that Alexandra's empire and the successor states were culturally Greek, they were also uh, drawn from this complex interaction of Macedonians and Greeks that did not emerge out of a Greek culture itself. But Rome, from its beginning, was expansive. It was outward-looking. The city of Rome itself was founded by several different hilltop villages growing and coalescing into one. So from the beginning, from the very moment when there was such a thing as Rome, Rome was made up of people who came from different backgrounds and had to figure out how to work together. As Rome expanded, as it became a city-state and then a major player in central Italy and eventually an Italian state and eventually a Mediterranean empire, this is what the Romans kept doing. They would conquer peoples, but they would also incorporate them. The conquered were in most cases, there are some exceptions to this, but in most cases, not held aside. They were not subjugated they were not displaced, they were not exterminated, they were incorporated into the Roman state. This was the key to Rome's success in large part, because Rome's success as a conquering empire rested on its ability to raise fresh troops and send out a new army after previous armies had been defeated. We often think of the Roman army as this great machine that rolls forward unconquered. The reality is Romans were uh, defeated a lot. Romans lost a lot of battles. The difference is when the Romans lost a battle, they could always raise a new army and send it out to fight again. Most of the other people they were fighting against could not do that. And that depended upon the peoples that Rome had conquered being incorporated into the Roman state well enough that they could be drawn on as soldiers to go out and fight on behalf of Rome. This integration was sometimes difficult. Many of the problems of the later Roman Republic and the early Empire were really grounded in the, uh, the difficulties that people faced in integrating themselves into Rome and being welcomed as part of Roman society, but the basic idea had always been there for the Romans. They looked outward and saw not so much foreigners as people who could eventually become Roman. It's a, it's a much more fluid concept in that sense of barbarianism is the, because we the way we sometimes apply it today as you described at the beginning is you know it's a it's a barrier of civilization but for the Romans that barrier is permeable you can have someone who goes from being a barbarian to being a full Roman. Precisely, this idea that barbarism is not necessarily an inherent cultural trait, but a state out of which people could rise. That's an idea that Greeks never really took on. But for the Romans, this was key. They thought of barbarians as people 
who could, in theory, in future, become civilized, become Romans, not people who were stuck in that state forever. As you uh, describe in the book, you have this very interesting moment in the definition of or the concept of barbarism as the Roman or barbarian as the Romans conceive it when they are interacting with the Greeks themselves. And, and that, that, you know, in a sense, you're taking these two strands of civilization in, in terms of their concept of barbarianism, and you're beginning to intertwine them somewhat. Yes, cultural relationships between the Romans and the Greeks are very interesting and often a bit unsettled. Because one of the results of the Greek experience in the colonies is that Greek culture had become the international standard. Greek art and Greek literature and Greek philosophy is what people looked to because the Greeks had worked so hard to provide versions of that that would be appealing and interesting to peoples like, again, the Etruscans, who loved Greek art so much. And so as Rome comes on the scene, they're entering a Mediterranean in which the common cultural vocabulary is Greek. Greek literature and art defines how people interact internationally. And the Romans come on the scene as a very successful military conquering power who have this outward-looking attitude, who have this willingness to take other peoples into themselves. They encounter Greek culture, and they have very, quite varying reactions to it. Some Romans fall in love with Greek culture. Some Romans become utterly enamored of Greece. They learn to speak Greek fluently. They travel in Greece. They send their children to go and study in Greece with the great philosophers. They import Greek art to their homes. They write literature in Greek. But there are other Romans who take a look at Greek culture and are taken aback. They are not happy with what they see. They react to Greek culture um, with a kind of resistance and reluctance. They feel as though Greek culture is almost a threat to Romanness. And one of the great voices for this side is the politician and orator Cato the Elder. One, uh, one incident in his life is that he was sent as an ambassador to Greece to try to negotiate affairs between the Greeks and the Romans. And even though Cato could speak Greek, he had learned Greek, he refused to speak Greek in Greece. He only spoke Latin, and he had his words translated because he wanted to make it clear to the Greeks that he was not going to give in to them. They were going to have to move to meet him. It's, it seems and, that what this is where you're starting to see that idea of barbarianism becoming much more pejorative than it had in the past. Yes, yes. And Greek reactions to the Romans were also a bit of a mixed bag. Though some Greeks saw the military might of Rome, they saw how well the Romans were able to organize and run the state, and they admired that. They saw that as something that would be good for the Greeks. But there were other Greeks who looked at the Romans and saw them as upstarts, as uncultured, as people who needed to learn from the Greeks if they were going to be civilized. 
though Greece under Roman rule had this kind of odd uh, bifurcated experience. There were some Romans who admired the Greeks and some who despised them. And there were some Greeks who were open to working with the Romans and some who looked down on them. And there was always a certain tension in that relationship. Uh, I often make this analogy that Roman attitudes towards Greece are a bit like American attitudes towards France, in that there is a great admiration for French culture and cuisine and fashion and music, but there's also this prejudice against the French that you hear come through in a lot of political oratory. It's very much the same for the Romans. There was an admiration for Greek culture. At the same time, there was, among many people, a real hesitancy about the Greeks themselves. And that ties back into uh, what we were talking about earlier, which is that ultimately it's more about how the Romans see themselves than whether the Greeks are that way. It's they're, they're looking at the Greeks and they're saying, uh, "Well, the problem with the Greece, the Greeks is this," and what, what what they're saying is a Greek flaw is, of course, you know, on the flip side, a Roman strength. Yeah, it's very much as a reflection back on the Roman sense of themselves. A lot of the criticism that Romans like Cato had of the Greeks was to call them effete, decadent, that they've been lost in luxury, over-sophisticated. They've lost that good, old, traditional, martial hardiness that the Romans still have. And interestingly, that is exactly what some Greeks said about the Persians. So you have Romans who take up this theme of praising Rome's strength, its martial vigor, its traditional hardiness, as opposed to Greek softness and effeminacy and decadence. They are, in fact, taking up a Greek theme. They are taking up a theme that some Greeks had used to talk about themselves in relation to Persia. And yet that concept is one that gets turned around again over the course of the empire, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. As we come later in Roman history, this idea of decadence comes back again. And we see Roman writers starting to turn to this theme of decadence, of having lost the basic strength and hardiness and they now see this as the failing of their own people, that Rome has lost what made it great, while there are other peoples in the world, people like the Germans or the Sasanian Persians, who are stronger than Rome, who are more virtuous than the Romans, and they are presenting a great threat to Rome. And so this theme of strength and weakness, of masculine hardiness versus feminine decadence, it's a theme that keeps coming back and being reused and redeployed as a way of talking about identity. Greeks use it to talk about themselves in relation to Persia. Romans use it to talk about themselves in relation to the Greeks. And then later, Romans turned this around and suggested that Rome itself had lost its way. Now, this was a way in which they looked outwards and saw that other people were doing what Rome used to do and were doing it better than the Romans now did. 
Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So my next project is, uh, as it were, a small slice of this. I'm working on a book about the Greco-Persian Wars, which provides a basic introduction to the context and the events of the wars, and also a selection of sources in translation that come both from the Greek side and from the Persian side as well. Is this going to be a book that you're gearing uh, towards an audience of students, or are you thinking uh, more uh, about a, a collection for scholars to draw upon? This is meant, again, for students, uh, and it's also, once again, uh, a project of frustration for a certain extent, that it's very hard to find histories of the Greco-Persian Wars that don't implicitly take the side of the Greeks. I really want there to be a text that's available for students, that's accessible, that presents this history in a way that's easy for them to understand and gives them documents to read, but that gives us the point of view of the Persians as well. Well, it sounds like a great project, uh, and I look forward to seeing it when it's done. I hope so. Uh, Eric Jensen, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.